Good evening. You'll need your Bibles open on page 1089, John chapter 20. And we'll be looking at this uh, account of the resurrection. Before we do that, let's uh, pray. Let's just pray to God. Father, our heads can uh, barely get round uh, the wonder of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and everything that it means for us. Lord, I pray as we read these words again tonight and as we hear the words preached, Lord, may you once again fill us with that hope and joy uh, that the disciples eventually found when they realised what had happened in that garden tomb. In the name of Christ, Amen. Well, earlier on this, uh, on this week, I was sitting in a hospital waiting room, uh, as you do, and uh, we were all sat there quietly in this room, uh, each reading magazines, although I was reading uh, something to prepare the sermon with, uh, and all the magazines were for women anyway. Have you ever noticed that? In hospital waiting rooms, they're always for women, the magazines, there's nothing ever for the men. Um, and we all sat there reading our magazines, our books, or whatever. And, uh, and, one, uh, and they were picking us off one by one. So they're coming through the door and they're shouting, Mrs. Thompson, or whatever. And, and Mrs. Thompson would get up and go off and see the doctor. Anyway, so Mrs. Thompson uh, got up when she was called and she walked across the room to put her magazine back on the table where it had come from. And she chucked it, the last sort of little half metre or so. And it landed on top of the top magazine and slipped off and fell on the floor with that loud <laughs> slap sort of sound that only a magazine can make. At which point somebody across the room said something to their partner which obviously made her laugh, so she laughed. And then somebody else on the other side of the room started laughing as well. And this person had a really strange laugh, sort of hooping sort of laugh. The sound was slightly demented, it has to be said. So, so the other couple started laughing again, and then somebody in the corner started laughing. And at this point, I was trying to be very focused on my sermon. And, uh, but I started laughing as well. And in the end, the whole room was laughing. And all because this lady got up and, picked up and put a magazine onto the table and it fallen off and made a loud sound. It was a completely inappropriate, uh, <laughs> inappropriate reaction, really, in the, in the circumstances that were, were nothing in themselves. And here in John's account of the resurrection, we see another inappropriate reaction as Mary cries in the garden, when really, as we all know, we should, she should have been celebrating as we are today. But what if there had still been a body in the tomb when Mary went to the garden tomb? Would Mary still have been crying then? In some ways, that's what she expected to find, wasn't it? A body. She expected to get on with the task of uh, embalming the body and finishing off the burial preparations. Would she still have been crying? And yet, if there had been a body in that tomb, then that would have been the saddest thing ever. There would have been no hope, no solution to our sin, no forgiveness, no end to our sometimes lonely, sometimes meaningless lives. No truth, no way to God. Apart from a brief mention by some uh, ancient Jewish historian, as somebody who did miracles and was crucified by the Romans, we would probably not even have heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Crying then would have been an appropriate reaction. But crying when the resurrection was the best thing ever that had ever happened in the world history was just silly, wasn't it? When you think about it. A bit like our laughing in that waiting room. So why does John give us this, uh, such a vivid portrayal of events on that first Easter Sunday morning? Well, I think he wants to bring to our notice four things uh, this evening. 
Uh, firstly, it is something that happened. In other words, it is historical. The resurrection is something that was predicted. It was biblical. It's something that is inexplicable. It is supernatural. And it's the start of something new. It's news. So let's have a look at each one of these in turn. Firstly, it's something that actually happened. It's historical. So verse 1. John focuses in here on Mary Magdalene's Magdalena's story as she goes to the tomb early in the morning. From the other Gospels we know, uh, however, that there's, she was probably accompanied by the other Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and probably Salome and Joanna too. And in John's, notice, in John's Gospel here in verse 2, we do notice that she reports back to Peter and says, we, we don't know where they have put him. So Mary was going to the tomb, but she was accompanied by some other women. We also know from Luke that they took more spices with them to uh, help prepare that body. And despite the fact that Nicodemus had already taken enough spices to the tomb to, to bury a king. And Mark tells us that they'd also forgotten a small minor detail that they wouldn't be able to open the tomb when they got there because they wouldn't be able to roll the big stone away on their own. All in all, this is not the most thought-through expedition that you can ever have you ever found. Plus, of course, they were women. And women's testimony in, in those times would have been accepted in the court of law. It wouldn't have been uh, legitimate. So nobody was going to believe what they saw anyway. And notice also that when they do arrive and they discover that the stone is missing, the first thought in their minds is not to praise God and shout, he is risen. You know, if John had been making this all up, he, he really should have made a better job of it. But as always, the truth is sometimes more inconvenient than the narrative purpose uh, uh, would, would demand sometimes. So Mary and the others leap to the kind of Indiana Jones conclusion, uh, and they can only think of one solution. It's graves, grave robbers. Grave robbers were common in those days. In fact, it was such a lucrative business at a time when people were very poor that it became a capital offence in Judea. So it's not surprising that the women don't hang around to find out more, and so they go running back to tell Peter and John. When Peter and John hear about it, they also start running, but they run back to the tomb. And John, who's writing this account, uh, gets there first. Of course, any man would remember that detail. <laughs> and he looks into the tomb, but he only catches a glimpse of what was inside. So he could see the strips of linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in any, in any further to investigate. Peter, true to form, is, is much bolder. He catches up with John and he goes straight into the tomb, not worrying whether he might find robbers still lurking in there. Verse 6 says he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Then finally uh, John joins him in the tomb and comments about himself. He says the other disciples saw and believed. So what was it about these strips of linen uh, that made them believe? Well, you see, I think it occurred to them that this clearly wasn't the work of grave robbers. The Jews didn't bury uh, significant treasure with their dead. They weren't the Egyptians burying their dead with uh, silver and gold. Now, the grave robbers would have probably been after linen. It was the fine cloth. It's very expensive. It's much better than the ordinary people in the street would have been wearing. And it wasn't this sort of uh, bandage that you can think of when you watch Scooby-Doo on the telly, you know, where they sort of wrap up the, the Egyptian, scary Egyptian money that walks around like this. And then it's finally revealed at the end of the, end of the, uh, end of the program, and it's the museum curator who was determined to steal all the things for his own personal collection. No, this was more like a very large sheet 
It was wide enough for a man to be laid on, and long enough to start at his feet, be folded over the top of his head, and then back down over his body again. It would then be tied with strips of linen at the feet and at the arms, so they all couldn't come undone. It was like a big body, effectively a sort of gift wrapped. Then there were spices. Nicodemus had brought along about 34 kilos of myrrh and aloe to embalm Jesus with. It was far more than normal or necessary. And some of it could surely be reused. So as Peter and John walked into the tomb, it was immediately obvious to them that this was not the work of grave robbers. Because all this valuable material was still lying there, apparently untouched. The bit that was missing was the corpse. But what value had a corpse? Unless, for some reason, the Romans or the Jews had decided to take the body and keep it uh, in case it was needed for evidence later. But if it's the body you want, why take it out of its wrapping? Why not just pick it up and carry it as it is? It's much more hygienic and pleasant for all those involved. And if, for some reason, they, didn't want to, they did want to remove the grey clothes, then why fold them up neatly and leave them lying as though they'd never contained the body? Nor was it like when Lazarus had come back to life. Do you remember that? A few, a few weeks, a few months earlier, they had seen Lazarus come back to life and he, he had to be freed from his grave clothes. And that would have made quite a mess. This was nothing like that. No, the disciples saw and they believed in the resurrection on the strength of what they'd seen. And that's what John wants us to see too. He wants us to see that the resurrection is something that actually happened. In other words, it's historical. But John also wants to see us that the resurrection is something that was predicted. It is biblical. Look at verse 9, and there's this little side comment there about himself and Peter. He says, they still, not, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So why add this little comment here? Why point out his own ignorance? Well, surely it's to help us reflect that the resurrection had been predicted, not only by Jesus during his lifetime, although he did do that, but also by what we call the Old Testament, what they called the Scriptures. Now, although Peter and John didn't understand then, it didn't take them very long. Because a few weeks later, we find them on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, uh, preaching to the crowds. Peter gets up and explains the resurrection in terms of Psalm 16. And Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, were apparently written about King David. They say, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices, my body will also rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the, to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Amazing words. But unfortunately they were untrue if they were about David, as, as Peter was quick to point out. He says, there's only one problem with all that. Because brothers, I can point you to the tomb of David over here. He died. He was buried and his tomb is here until this day with his body, with his body inside. But Peter goes on to say, but David was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. And seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was, not he was not to be abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. So God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to this fact, says Peter. So the resurrection is something that happened, it's historical, it's something that was predicted, it is biblical. But it's also something that is inexplicable, it's a supernatural. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. 
They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. You see, at this point, Mary still didn't get it. You see, the natural explanation was, was still that the body had been moved by somebody. If it hadn't been the grave robbers, then perhaps it was the gardener who had appeared in the garden, who perhaps he had moved him for some reason. Tell me where you put him, and I'll go and get him. I'm not sure how she was going to carry him all on her own, but she still thought that there must have been a natural explanation. Do you notice in this, in this little passage how Mary can't keep her, her eyes off the tomb? She sits there staring at it, almost as if her head is on a cord which constantly draws her back to the tomb. It's a bit like when we accidentally leave the computer on in our kitchen next to the kitchen table and the children's eyes keep wandering over to the computer screen during our meals and we have to go and switch it off. You can't keep their eyes away from it. In verse 11, she bends over to look inside the tomb and she sees the angels. But then she senses somebody behind her. She turns around, in verse 14, to see Jesus standing there. But before they've even finished that conversation, she's like me. She's turned back and she's looking at the tomb again. Because when he says Mary, she recognizes his voice, but she has to turn around again to speak to him. So she stares into this tomb trying to find this natural explanation. But the supernatural explanation was standing behind her, more alive than she could ever possibly have imagined. And finally, it was the start of something new. It was truly news. So after crying, Rabboni, Mary must have moved towards Jesus and held him tight. Because Jesus says in verse 17, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So do not hold on to me. Stop clinging to me. Why not? Seems a bit harsh, doesn't it, in the circumstances? But what Jesus seems to be saying here is that I'm not returning to the old life. Lazarus rose from the dead, but he will go on getting older and older, and one day he will die again. It's not like that. You see, Mary was clinging on to something as though nothing had happened, nothing had changed. She thought it would be exactly the way it had been before. But no, Jesus says, I am on my way to the Father. I'm on my way to returning to him. This is the beginning of that process, but don't worry, I'm not going yet. There's still time. I'm on my way to the Father, but you still have time to go and tell the others. So go on, go and do that. And with that, we learn that this is something completely new. So it wasn't the old relation that had gone, relationship that had gone before. It wasn't that Jesus, in fact, had just swooned on the cross. He hadn't died at all. That had been laid to rest in the cold tomb, and some 30 hours later, he'd woken up, managed to escape Houdini's style from his grave clothes, then single-handedly push the rolling stone back, escape his Roman guards, and then hang around in the garden for a bit, waiting for the disciples to turn up. No, this was something completely new. This was an experience of Jesus they'd never had before. Instead of the old Jesus who walked with them, but got tired and hungry just as they did, here was a Jesus who would remain for a while and then send another counsellor, the Holy Spirit, who would be with the disciples forever wherever they were. And that's what makes it 
such good news. That's why Mary runs to the other disciples and shouts, I have seen the Lord in verse 18. The news is that Jesus is alive. So the resurrection is something that happened. It's historical. It's something that was predicted. It was biblical. It's something inexplicable. It's supernatural. And it starts with something new. It is truly good news. Jesus is alive. So go back to Mary's tears again. They were a totally inappropriate reaction. What she had discovered was good news, amazing news. Jesus is alive today. But what if we'd been able to turn up in the garden just at that point, just around verse 10, before she saw the angels? What if we'd gone up to Mary and put our arm around her and taken her over to the shade of a tree and asked her, Mary, why are you crying? What do you think she would have said? Well, on one level... She may well have turned to us rather angrily and said something like, well, of course I'm crying. My friend, my teacher, he's been arrested. He was a man who's done nothing wrong in his life, who's only brought blessing and goodness into people's lives. He's been falsely accused, wrongly condemned, beaten up, humiliated and crucified. And even when he was living, he once said he had nowhere to rest his head. And now, in his death, the tomb is empty. He, even now, cannot rest in peace. Of course, we could only say to Mary, Cry on, Mary, cry on. But on another level, her grief goes far, far deeper than that. Yes, she wants to be with Jesus. Yes, she wants to feel his presence again. She wants to know his assurance, his laughter, to hear the compassion in his voice. She wants to see more people leaping with joy as they are healed or their sins are forgiven. She wants to see more Pharisees looking upset when Jesus shows them up for what they are. But she also wants to know that he will never leave her or the other disciples. She wants to know that they'll always have him with her, with them, until the end. More than that, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Messiah. He had taught about forgiveness. He had taught about knowing God, about new life, about being set free. Was he just a liar? Perhaps the events of the last few days had shown that he was a liar, or at least a little fanciful about the way of thinking about himself. But how could that be when he was so perfect in every other way? Well, perhaps some of you wouldn't call yourselves a Christian here tonight, but you're interested, in which case it's great to have you here. Uh, We enjoy having people coming to listen and to make up their own minds. Perhaps if that's you, you look around at the world and really you can't see very much meaning it at all, except perhaps the satisfaction of being with your family, or your best relationships, or some satisfaction from work, maybe. Or perhaps you're aware that God is out there somewhere, and you wish there was a way of knowing more about what he was like. Or even more importantly, what he thinks of you. Well, Christians stake everything. They stake everything that they have, every belief that they have, on this one historical event, predicted in the scriptures. If it's not true, and the body remained in that tomb then we should just join Mary in crying in the garden. Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we would be found to be liars. So all I can say is look at the evidence yourselves. Do what John and Peter had to do. They had to search the scriptures. Read the Gospels and ask whether the evidence for the resurrection is convincing. Read one of the many books written by journalists and lawyers on the subject, and we can tell you about those afterwards if you like. Find out for yourself whether Jesus is alive, 
Ask your Christian friends. Ask them what it means to them to know that Jesus is alive. On the 23rd of May, on a, uh, on a Monday evening, we're starting a new uh, Christianity Explored course. Christianity Explored is a, is a great course. It runs for about seven weeks. And uh, it's, it's just about asking questions. It's about reading the Gospel of Mark and asking questions in a small group, not in any uh, threatening environment or threatening way. There's no commitments. Nobody expects anything from you. It's just an opportunity to ask those questions you want to ask and have somebody try to answer them and somebody else give a better answer, probably within the group. So if you're interested in that, let me know afterwards. Or if you know somebody who would benefit from that, uh, let me know afterwards. But if you do decide that the resurrection is both historical and biblical, then remember that it's not just some kind of abstract concept, something that can remain academic or intellectual, because it was something completely supernatural too, the start of something new for all of us. Now, we all enjoy a good miracle story, don't we? And if you ask somebody what a, a miracle means, then they might give you an example, I don't know, somebody coming back to life or being healed from an incurable disease. And yet perhaps a better definition of miracles is this, a welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws. If you take that definition, that means the resurrection is a miracle because it's inexplicable. If Norwich City reaches the premiership, maybe that's a miracle inexplicable but so too is the stingy person becoming generous the mean person becoming kind the selfish altruistic the harsh gentle the stubborn flexible and the proud humble those are also all miracles and that's what happens to Christian believers when they truly believe that Jesus is alive. So having received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the disciples really sensed the presence of Jesus with them. They were no longer frightened or afraid and hiding. They were bold and they were preaching to the crowds because they knew that Jesus is alive. And just a few weeks after that, in Acts 4, uh, uh, Luke describes their lives like this. He says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was given to anyone as he had need. You see, that's what happens when people meet the risen Lord Jesus. He changes their hearts so that things that seemed to be important before, like land and possessions and houses, suddenly become less important. It becomes more important to share everything and to be with other believers. But even more remarkable was that most of the people who are now believing and sharing their possessions had never ever met Jesus face to face. And yet they could also enter into a relationship of love with him. And much, much later in Peter's life, he could write, perhaps still with some degree of amazement, he could write to believers living far away in what is now uh, modern Turkey. And he could say, although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. So this could only be because Jesus was now alive. It's the start of an entirely new relationship with Jesus. It means he was alive 2,000 years ago when Mary was speaking to him. 
He was alive 1,900 years ago when the church was just getting off the ground. And he's alive today for us too. And that's the real news, that all of us who know Jesus have to go and tell that Jesus is alive and he's transforming our lives. Let's pray. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Father, we praise you and thank you for the resurrection hope that you've given us. We thank you and praise you that Jesus was prepared to die for our sins so that they may be taken away completely that we may live now with no more guilt or pain or shame, but that we may know your presence with us, changing us day by day. And one day that work will be perfected, one day that work will be completed when we enjoy our inheritance in heaven with you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.